Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, is made possible in part by the Florida Humanities Council and the National Endowment for the Humanities. It's also made possible in part by the Jesse Ball DuPont Fund and by the Brevard County Board of Commissioners through the Brevard Cultural Alliance, Incorporated. This is Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, on the web at myfloridahistory.org. I'm Ben Broatmarkle, and coming up on this week's program, former state attorney Dan Warren discusses his memoir, If It Takes All Summer, Martin Luther King, the KKK, and states' rights in St. Augustine, 1964. Dr. King chose St. Augustine for the sole purpose of demonstrating to the world segregation in its worst form. We'll remember one of the most famous and amusing political speeches in Florida history, although most historians agree that it was never actually given. George Smathers on the stump in North Florida would say things like, Claude Pepper is a shameless extrovert in Washington circles. He commutes with his neighbor's wife. His sister is a thespian in wicked New York. And revisit the work of Florida folk artist Mario Sanchez. All that ahead on Florida Frontiers. Lift every voice and sing Till earth and heaven ring Ring with the harmonies Of liberty Let our rejoicing The song Lift Every Voice and Sing, also called the Negro National Anthem, was written by Floridian James Weldon Johnson and his brother John Rosamond Johnson to celebrate Abraham Lincoln's birthday at an event in Jacksonville in 1900. Sixty-four years later, as the city of St. Augustine planned to celebrate the 400th anniversary of its founding, only white people were invited to participate. Martin Luther King Jr. decided to come to St. Augustine to challenge local authorities and the powerful Ku Klux Klan. Florida Governor Ferris Bryant appointed State Attorney Dan Warren to be his personal representative in St. Augustine. Warren has written a book about his experiences with Dr. King called If It Takes All Summer, published by the University of Alabama Press. In June of 1964, when uh, Dr. King uh, decided to uh, uh, bring his... Uh, his uh, civil rights uh, demonstrators into St. Augustine. Um, the, the issue was whether or not the blacks could demonstrate uh, by marching 
through the old portion of St. Augustine at night. And the city had denied the SCLC a permit uh, to march at night. And so in order uh, to, um, to uh, get this issue into the federal district court, which had original jurisdiction over First Amendment rights, Dr. King devised a plan to have himself arrested, and then they could file a petition before the federal district court. Dr. King's selection of St. Augustine for a demonstration against discrimination and the enforcement of it by local government officials was not accidental. He counted on the KKK and other groups opposing desegregation to come out in force, drawing widespread attention to the issue. Dan Warren says King was not disappointed. Once Mrs. Peabody was arrested and Dr. King was arrested, uh, it was a clarion call uh, for rallying the Ku Klux Klan from the United States. And we had a Klansman that came in from California and from Georgia and from Indiana and from Alabama and Mississippi, and they just converged on St. Augustine and actually took over the entire city, primarily from lack of leadership in the community, primarily from the fate of those that held the seals of power uh, to speak out uh, against uh, the segregated policies that they were enforcing, and for a lack of of, of the use of the seals of power that had been granted to public officials by the public, uh, the Klan was able to become the voice of St. Augustine. And, and a proof of that is the fact that in many business establishments around the city, there were big bowls for donations to the White Citizens Council, which was the, uh, which was the, uh, the speaker of the, you know, the, of the Klan. And they were collected every day to help finance the violence that was going on in St. Augustine. Dr. King declared that St. Augustine was the most lawless city he had ever marched in. Not surprisingly, King was cautious when approached by State Attorney Dan Warren. To help create an atmosphere where an impartial solution could be mediated, Warren went to the Daytona Beach News Journal and convinced them to send reporter George Allen to talk with Dr. King. About 253 uh, demonstrators had been arrested up until this date, and they were actually clogging the court system in St. Augustine. There was, you know, there was no way in the world uh, they could try this many uh, cases. And so, um, Dr. King um, had uh, decided to uh, to get himself arrested. And uh, in June of '64, uh, uh, he was arrested for uh, trespass, just as Mrs. Peabody had. Uh, when he was asked uh, to leave the Monson Motor Lodge, which is where most of the demonstrations took place in that immediate section of the old city of St. Augustine. And so Tobias Simon, uh, one of the um, uh, civil, right, civil rights uh, leaders for the um, American Civil Liberties Union, who was representing Dr. King and the LCLC, had filed a petition before federal judge Bryant Simpson in St. Augustine to remove all of the cases that had been of the demonstrators uh, into the federal district court. And Judge Simpson had initially refused to do so. Uh, and uh, Tobias had uh, issued, uh, had filed a petition uh, for a stay with the Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals in New Orleans, which had been granted by Judge Tuttle. And so when I got into this, uh, to the situation in the first part of June, 
the status of all of those cases was very much in doubt as to whether or not they could be prosecuted in state courts or whether or not they were going to be prosecuted in the federal district court. And, and Dr. King was actually in St. Augustine when he was, at that time he was arrested and he was in jail at the time that the governor called me when, when I was appointed. And that's when I, uh, I came back to Daytona Beach and I knew that I had to have somebody in St. Augustine that I could trust. And George Allen, who was a star reporter for the News Journal, was a close friend of mine. And so I wanted to have him assigned to St. Augustine. So George went with me to St. Augustine. We checked into the Monson Motor Lodge and uh, we devised a plan. Uh, let's find out what King wants. And so George took his tape recorder, just like you're doing here, and went into the jail. He couldn't, no reporters were allowed to interview King. L.O. Davis, who was the sheriff, had had enough of this international publicity that Mrs. Peabody had brought on to St. Augustine. I mean, the press had poured in from all over the world. There were reporters everywhere. And, uh, and no one could get in to see Dr. King. So I called L.O. Davis up and I said, listen, I got a guy that I want to interview King and I want to get him into the jail. And so he said, uh, fine. So he let him uh, uh, go in and interview him. And George said this is the first time he'd ever inter interviewed anyone uh, in their underwear. It was so hot in the jail. This was in June. And King had stripped down and George said, incidentally, uh, his uh, jockey shorts are blue silk. So then George came back. He had the tape recording of the conversation, and I, we had, I had told George to ask him a series of questions. What do you want? How do you want to accomplish this? And what can we do to resolve this? And so then I sent, back, sent George back in to talk to him a second time and a third time, and I said, would you be willing to come before a grand jury? I'm going to have a grand jury and panel. We're going to see if we can't appoint a biracial commission to sit down and discuss these issues because nobody in power would talk to him. They just wouldn't talk. And he sat back and said, yes, he'd be willing to appear. And I assured him, I told George to assure him that this wasn't a trap. We weren't trying to embarrass him, that he would re be received with due dignity before the grand jury. And that, um, and it wouldn't be a subpoena, it would just be a request. And we weren't, there weren't any tricks up our sleeves. And so he did, and he, uh, he uh, came before the grand jury. I had him there for about three hours. President Johnson had encouraged Dr. King to demonstrate in St. Augustine. Johnson was trying to have a civil rights bill passed, and King's work in St. Augustine helped to make that happen within a few months. Dr. King chose St. Augustine for the sole purpose of demonstrating to the world segregation in its worst form, in the most segregated city, as he said, uh, and, and the oldest city in the United States. It was an ideal forum for passage of the Civil Rights Act of 1964 that, that was then being uh, debated in Congress. And if you remember, there was a filibuster going on at that time in the Senate over the Civil Rights Bill uh, by Southern politicians. And, uh, and the passage was very much in doubt as to whether or not it would pass. It was a revolutionary bill. 
Dan Warren is a former state attorney. His memoir, If It Takes All Summer, Martin Luther King, the KKK, and States' Rights in St. Augustine, 1964, is published by the University of Alabama Press. You can purchase the book by going to myfloridahistory.org and clicking on Books and Gifts. Production assistance for this report came from Bill Schumann, who recorded an oral history with Dan Warren for the Volusia County Bar Association with funding from the Florida Humanities Council. This is Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society. I'm Ben Broatmarkle. Visit our website at myfloridahistory.org to get details about our annual meeting and other special events, look at historic photographs, become a member of the Florida Historical Society, and much more. Florida Senator Claude Pepper is fondly remembered as a champion of the elderly, but as Jamie Gould reports, as popular as Pepper was, George Smathers was able to defeat him in a hard-fought campaign. 
Some Pepper supporters say that Smathers was successful by appealing to Floridians who had difficulty with three-syllable words. While most Florida historians agree that this speech was never made, it has become a legend in Florida political history. Mention the name Claude Pepper and you'll likely think champion of the elderly. Claude Pepper was elected to the U.S. Senate from Florida in 1936. He served until he was defeated by George Smathers in the early 1950s. The Smathers-Pepper race came way before television attack ads, of course, but it is legendary in the annals of Florida politics. Brad Culverhouse, a lawyer in Fort Pierce and a former aide to Pepper, remembers. George Smathers on the stump in North Florida would say things like, Claude Pepper is a shameless extrovert in Washington circles. He commutes with his neighbor's wife. You know, <laughs> his sister is a thespian in wicked New York. <laughs> in 1962, after a reapportionment, a seat opened up in Miami. Then-President John F. Kennedy called Claude Pepper and asked him to run for it. There was a field of like seven Democrats, and he beat them without a runoff. And of course, at that time, the Democratic primary was the only election that counted. That's right. Did Claude Pepper ever talk to you about the 1950 election? He did. We were in Rome in 1968. I was an aide to him. We were on our way to Israel to assess the refugee situation after the Six Days War. He was the guest of the Italian-American Chamber of Commerce. He introduced me that morning as his adopted son. On the way back to the hotel, I said, Senator, have you and Mrs. Pepper ever had any children? He said, Brad, he said, yes, Mildred and I have had one son but he went bad. His name was George, beating George Smathers. <laughs> anyway. So he had some humor. He did. I will never forget that when my philosophy was forming, I told him that I thought I might become a Republican. We had just had dinner together at the National Democratic Club. He leaned over to me and he said, Brad, you can't be a Republican. You have too good a heart. <laughs> <laughs> I met Claude Pepper when I was a I state officer in the Junior College Student Government Association. About three or four years after I was working for him, and we were talking about St. Louis County, and he said, there's some friends of mine there, wonderful people, you know, they're passed on out. Sheriff B.A. Brown, Stacy Rogers, and I said, Sarah, B.A. Brown was my grandfather, and Stacy Rogers was my uncle. And he said, I knew you came from fine stock. There was a certain force between us. I think the Latins call it simpatico. I've noticed that you continued to address him as senator. I do. And those people who worked for him and cared for him and had affection for him would always refer to him as senator. And, of course, you always refer to someone by the highest office they've ever held, but we did it out of affection. He insisted, though, that in the House of Representatives, he be called congressman because it would irk the other House members. When Smathers decided to retire from the Senate in 1968, Pepper thought about running for the seat again. I was state chairman of the group called YGP, Youth Goes Pepper. I was organizing the campuses for it. But he obviously changed his mind because Leroy Collins was the Democrat that year. Wasn't yes. He? Leroy Collins was speaking and somebody said, what do you think about Claude Pepper running against you? And he said, well, please don't put Pepper on my tail. The late 1960s were a time of domestic unrest over the war in Vietnam. I was with him at the Democratic National Convention in Chicago in 1968. I was inside with Mayor Daley and Claude Pepper and others. First time I ever saw Claude Pepper cry. Tears just streamed down his face. At what was going on outside? Yes, yes, I still get emotional about it. As he said, the country was just tearing itself apart. 
Pepper continued serving in Congress until his death in 1989. He became one of the four or five most powerful men in the country because he was chairman of the Rules Committee. But primarily, Claude Pepper was known as older Americans' staunchest ally. I've been talking with Brad Culverhouse. Janie Gould from WQCS prepared that report. Artists help us to look at the world and the past in new ways. Artists can help us to learn about our cultural heritage. Bill Dudley has this profile of Florida folk artist Mario Sanchez. It's a weekday morning at the Gallery on Green in Old Town Key West. Manager and native Key Western Nance Frank is on hand to show visitors her collection of paintings, prints, and three-dimensional art but some of her most valued pieces are not considered fine art at all. They're the brightly painted wood carvings of folk artist Mario Sanchez. Mario is fascinating because he is chronicling the great American dream in a very special place. Frank is a longtime friend of the artist who's now well into his 90s. In addition to authoring a 1997 book about Mario, she's been working on a complete catalog of his work, estimated to be around 500 pieces. Well, Mario doesn't have any education, and Mario's a painter of memories, a carver of memories. The street scenes around him, his friends, it's folk artist paint about their everyday life. My carvings depict the way Key Westers were. Fishing, flying a kite, promenading on Duval Street on Saturday night. In a 1996 recording, Mario Sanchez talked about growing up on the island of Key West. I was born in Key West on October the 7th, 1908. My grandfather was a cigar maker and my father read to the workers in the factory every day. 
He was their entertainment as well as their educator. Since there was no radio or television in those days, when I was a young Mario's grandfather was one of a wave of Cuban cigar workers who came to Key West just after the Civil War. Monroe County historian Tom Hambright. The cigar industry starts in the late 1860s. Cuban revolutionaries are going forward against Spanish rule in Cuba, which leads to a big migration to Key West. So Mario grew up in that period, influenced by all of those, but particularly the Hispanic influence. Mario Sanchez pictures the characters of his Key West boyhood, the Italian monkey man, the Cuban dairyman, the taxi man with his horse-drawn cart. But some of Mario's best-known works are his painted carvings of colorful street scenes. There are humorous little vignettes. In one of them, you'll see children playing baseball with the blue team and the red team right on Duval Street. And in one of them, there's a rabbi flirting with the Catholic widow next door who's not having anything to do with him. There are street vendors, parades, and funeral processions, people living their lives in what a 19th century black journalist called the freest town in the American South because of its tolerance for racial and ethnic diversity. One thing, living on an island, small island, you have to get along more. And the tolerance seemed to be very good here. When you look at the history of the rest of the South, it was a simpler way of life. There was a lot of respect for people, and he, he brings that out. That, and it was a mostly a happy life, you know, less complicated life than I think we live today. The story behind the carvings is just this little slice of life from another time. Entrepreneur Ed Swift grew up on the island. Today, he's president of Historic Tours of America. Swift and his partner built an entire street with large-scale blow-ups of Sanchez's work as part of one of their Key West attractions. People who know nothing about the stories, know nothing about Mario, know nothing about the fact that he's such a great artist, are attracted, and I guess that's what great art is, they are attracted nonetheless to his work. The stuff speaks to you. I've never looked at myself as being a great artist or a famous artist because people in Key West know me as being a regular kind of guy, not like Hemingway who lived across the street from me. I never went to art school or ever took art lessons. The interesting thing with Mario is his recall. He's just phenomenal. He remembers buildings that are no longer there. And we have photographs of them. But Mario, he never looked at the old photographs. He did it all from memory. When you look at the old photographs beside his work, they're very accurate. It's sort of a representation in a way of, of the collective memory of people who lived in Key West at that time. State folklorist Tina Bukovales. You know, I've seen people look at Mario's carvings and it will bring to mind someone they knew or something that happened there and they can use them to teach their family, the, the younger people in their family, about what went on at that time. It's not written. Nobody has written it down that style of living, and so he conveys a story that's not told anywhere else, I don't think. His works are really icons for the Key West community. Things have changed so much in recent years that the time that Mario carves, I think, represents, for Key Westers, a golden age when their community was more theirs and their culture was distinct 
from other cultures, other places. I'm Bill Dudley. With funding from the Florida Department of State Division of Cultural Affairs, this report was produced by the Florida Humanities Council. You've been listening to Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society. You can visit us anytime on the web at myfloridahistory.org to listen to archived programs and much more. We hope you'll join us here again next week. I'm Ben Broatmarkle. Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, is made possible in part by the Florida Humanities Council and the National Endowment for the Humanities. It's also made possible in part by the Jesse Ball DuPont Fund and by the Brevard County Board of Commissioners through the Brevard Cultural Alliance, Incorporated.